listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 5 reading verse 16 to 26 and let's hear God's word. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. This is God's word. Here at Trinity, we are at the beginning of a series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. This famous list of nine virtues which the Apostle Paul outlines in Galatians 5 will grow in the life of the Christian. We can be confident that this fruit will grow in our lives simply because it is the fruit of the Spirit. When a person becomes a Christian... The Bible teaches they do so as a result of the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit now indwells us. He dwells within us Christians. And he begins to cultivate a certain kind of life in us. That life is described by Paul here in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit, a life of love, joy, peace, and so on. Last week we were looking at what Paul puts at the head of the list, love. This week we're looking at what he lists next, joy. Joy is yet another term in the list that is difficult to define. We can describe it using other terms. Joy is a kind of pleasure or delight. Joy is happiness, but the kind of happiness that has substance to it and lasts, not the fleeting momentary kind. We can describe it and we can also recognise it when we see it in action. 
The word the Bible uses for that is rejoice. It's something we observe when a person sings or smiles in the most authentic of ways, or even when just their entire disposition, the way they come across to others, is one that reveals a deep inner happiness. And so, as difficult as it is to define joy, we each nonetheless know what it is. In fact, we each not only know what it is, but we each also intuitively, without thinking about it, pursue it. The ancient philosopher Aristotle once wrote that in every decision we make, in every endeavour of ours, we are always aiming at some good. That sounds suitably philosophical, doesn't it? But he's essentially just making the observation that there is always something that drives everything we do, even if it's somewhat subconscious. In everything that we do, Through it, we are pursuing something that we regard as good. So you you get up and you go to work in the morning, often not out of pure love for your work, but because you believe it to be a good thing to earn money. You believe it to be a good thing to earn money because you believe it is a good thing to save up for something or to provide for your family or whatever the reason might be. So you, you get the idea. In everything we do, we are pursuing something that we regard as good. And Aristotle went on to pose the question, what then is the highest good that we pursue as human beings? That is to ask, if we keep digging deeper into our motivation for doing what we do, what would we find to be at the foundation? And he wrote this, Since all knowledge and every pursuit aims at some good, what is the highest of all practical goods? Well, as far as the name goes, there is pretty general agreement. It is happiness, say both ordinary and cultured people. And they identify happiness with living well or doing well. But when it comes to saying in what happiness consists, opinion differs. That is to say... In the first place, that there has hardly ever been any disagreement throughout human history that we are each ultimately in pursuit of true happiness, in pursuit of joy. But whilst there's almost universal agreement on that point, Aristotle also observed that opinions differ when it comes to saying in what happiness consists, when it comes to where we believe happiness can ultimately be found. And that second point, it hardly needs proving, does it? If we were to make the claim that every one of us is pursuing joy, we'd find a lot of agreement. If we were to say that joy is an inner delight, an outward rejoicing, happiness that endures, we'd probably all agree. But as soon as we begin to say, this is where joy can be found... That is where we would find opinions differ. Opinions uh, as to where true happiness ultimately lies differ from culture to culture, from generation to generation, from person to person. In fact, Aristotle goes on to say that often the same person changes his opinion on this matter throughout his life. Just think about it. When a person falls ill, he then says that happiness is to be found in good health. Whereas before he fell ill, he might have believed that true happiness could be found in success at work or in loving relationships. When a person is struggling financially, he says that happiness is found in having sufficient money, and so on and so on. 
Uh, Each one of us intuitively, by nature, pursues true happiness. But there's no universal agreement on where happiness can be found, far from it. And what's more is that there is even disagreement among us as to whether finding true happiness is even possible, whether it really exists. Even though we might by nature be drawn to pursue joy, we can endure such hardship in life that we give up pursuing it. We can think that it will forever elude us. Widespread struggles with depression and rises in suicide rates testify to that. But so do our own hearts, as we spend so much of our time with a sense of sadness rather than joy. So with all of that said, then, where do we even begin when it comes to this second virtue that Paul lists? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. What did Paul have in view? And how can we experience it if indeed we can? Well, Paul understood the Bible's teaching when it comes to three important things in this regard. The basis for joy, the absence of joy, and the experience of joy. The basis, the absence, the experience. The Bible explains to us why it is we long for joy, why it is that instead of joy we experience sorrow, and how we can come to experience the joy that we long for. First of all then, the basis for joy. Why is it that we long for true happiness? Well, Paul knew that the basis for joy is ultimately found in God himself. In fact, it's true that we ultimately learn what each of these virtues listed as the fruit of the Spirit are by beginning with God. He reveals to us what love is, what joy is, what peace is, and so on. And when it comes to joy, when it comes to our longing for true happiness, we can say this. We long for happiness because we were made in the image of an infinitely happy God. Perhaps it sounds strange to you to refer to God as happy. The idea that God is perfectly happy in himself undergirds all that Paul taught and wrote. In Ephesians 1 and in 1 Timothy 1, other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, he refers to God as the blessed God. The word blessed is a word that speaks of total contentment, full satisfaction, perfect happiness. And so to refer to God as the blessed God is to say that this perfection, this perfect happiness, is found in God himself. And that means that God lacks nothing. He needs nothing in order for him to be complete He is, in the true sense of the word, perfect. And we see this perfect joy that is found in God in the way that the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, relate to each other. When Jesus began to teach, we read at the beginning of the Gospels that he was baptised by John the Baptist. And at his baptism, we're told in Mark 1, verses 10 and 11, as Jesus walked out of the water... Two things happened. At first, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and came to rest on him in the form of a dove. And second, a voice came from heaven saying, 
This is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That scene is a wonderful picture of the perfect joy that the triune God has in himself. The father perfectly delights in the son who is perfectly delightful and pleasing to the father who loves to do the father's will and the spirit resting on the son at his baptism communicates this delight between the father and the son god is perfectly happy in himself he lacks nothing he needs nothing at which point we ought to slow down and observe that this here is something worth contemplating. This is a profound reality that has been revealed to us through the Bible, and it's a profound reality that, in one sense, does not require more to be said by way of explanation. But it does require us to marvel. God, in himself, is perfectly happy. And the perfect happiness of the triune God is the basis for the longing for happiness that you and I experience. Because we, as human beings, have been made in the image of God. We have been made, created and designed with the capacity to experience joy, to experience true happiness. Why is it that when we love to stand or sit and take in a beautiful view when we're outdoors somewhere we're sat on a beach taking in the panoramic view in front of us or when we're driving through the hills and all of a sudden we turn a corner and there's this glorious landscape before us as the green hills slope down to a deep blue lake reflecting the sky why is it at moments like that and any number of other experiences why is it that those experiences give us pleasure it's because we've been made in the image of the perfectly happy God. We've been made with a capacity for pleasure, for delight, for true and lasting happiness. And the reason you long for happiness is not that you've been fooled by a myth of some sort. The reason you long for happiness is that you've been created in the image of the infinitely happy God. The basis for joy, the Apostle Paul teaches us, is found in the God of joy. And hence Paul can write, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Now, as soon as we recognise that, the question becomes, then why so much sadness? Why is there so much sorrow? So secondly then, the absence of joy Undergirding Paul's understanding of joy and our experience of it is not only the Bible's teaching when it comes to why we long for joy, but also the Bible's teaching when it comes to why joy seems so absent from our experience. And that's significant because it is true, isn't it? That so much of the time it seems that true lasting happiness eludes us. One of the reasons why we find it so hard to contemplate God's perfect happiness is that our lives are filled with great sadness. 
We experience a thousand sorrows in this life, not only in the form of extremely painful and traumatic experiences, things that we can easily point to and say, the cause of my sadness is this, but also in the form of a sorrowfulness that we can carry around even when nothing obvious has caused it. In some ways, that latter experience can be more difficult to bear. And the question then is essentially, how have we got here? Well, for Paul, the answer is clear. What happened to bring us to this point was the fall. And that is to say, whilst humanity at the beginning was created by the perfectly happy God and created in a condition of perfect happiness, Adam who was the representative for all of humanity, rejected God, in whom perfect happiness exists, and in so doing, humanity was cut off from its source of joy and fell into a condition, as we affirmed in our affirmation of faith, of sin and misery. Now, that might seem something of a complicated thing to wrap your head around, Try thinking about it like this. For Paul, as we've already seen, the basis for joy, the reason why we long for true happiness, is found in God himself. God is perfectly happy, and he created us in his image with the capacity for happiness too. This was, if you like, a mountain peak experience. It was a high point in the history of humanity, right at the beginning of the timeline of human history. But when Adam sinned, when he rejected God by disobeying his command in the Garden of Eden, all humanity along with Adam fell. Fell from this glorious mountain peak existence into a dark, dark valley. And in this valley, the perfect joy of the beginning is absent In fact, the Bible uses these terms to describe our current experience. We sang from Psalm 84 earlier in the service. You might have noticed that in the third verse of the setting we sang, the psalm refers to this life as a valley or a veil, which is just another way of referring to it, a valley. The lowlands that run between two mountains. Sometimes you can be out walking in a valley between two mountains and it'd be a spectacular experience with the beauty of the mountains either side and the scenery of the valley itself. But that's not the scene in which Psalm 84 refers to this life as a valley. Because, as we sang, Psalm 84 describes this life as a valley of weeping. It's a valley of tears, not of joy. A valley of sorrow, not happiness. And this, if you like, is the valley that we have descended into as human beings who are no longer on top of that first mountain, who are no longer in the condition that God created us in. This, ultimately, is the explanation for the absence of joy that you know only too well. You live as a fallen human being in the valley of tears. True happiness, although you still long for it, 
is not a fruit that grows in this valley. At which point it's worth pausing to take note of how the teaching of the Bible helps us understand the life that we experience here and now. It teaches us that the reason we desire joy is because we were created in the image of the joyful God. But it also explains that the reason we are far more acquainted with misery than we are with joy is because we have fallen from our original happy condition and now live out our lives in the valley of tears. It's worth taking note of that because one of the things that compounds our sadness and only makes us more sorrowful is the not knowing what to make of it. The not knowing the answer to the why question. But here is the place to begin in answering that question. The absence of joy is a feature of the valley of tears. Those foundational realities of creation and fall undergird Paul's understanding of joy. But with all of that said, the fact of the matter is that in Galatians 5, Paul teaches that joy is still possible. We see that in the fact that he lists it as a fruit of the Spirit and he urges us to walk by the Spirit. He's urging us to be joyful. How is that possible? How can we still, even now, experience joy? Well, thirdly and finally then, I want us to look at the experience of joy. How is it that Paul, knowing the reality of the fall and knowing the sorrow of life in the fallen valley of tears... How is it that he can still view joy as something that we can experience? In order to answer that question, we need to take a step back and revisit the question of where joy can be found. Aristotle observed that opinions differ greatly on that matter. But what does the Bible teach? When we ask where can we find true happiness... What is the answer that the Bible gives? And the short answer is we find true happiness in knowing God. This is what we were created for. We hear it just prior to every worship service here at Trinity. We said it earlier in our affirmation of faith. We exist. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. True joy, true enjoyment is found in knowing God. And it's the reason why the Valley of Tears is the Valley of Tears. Because here we have lost that relationship with God which was the source of our true happiness. That's not to say that there are no pleasures to be experienced outside of knowing God. But it is to say that for as long as we remain apart from God, true and lasting happiness continues to elude us. And the happiness we know apart from God is only temporary. It's why David says in Psalm 16, as we read earlier in the service, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And at the end of the psalm, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so if true happiness is found in knowing God, in being restored to that relationship we were created for in the first place, 
then how can this relationship be restored? Well, there's no way that we can climb out of this valley and return to the mountain peak existence that Adam and Eve enjoyed at the beginning. Our descent from that point was too steep. Our fall was too great. And we are too worn out by sin and misery to even attempt it. But the mercy of God is too great to leave us in our sorrow, in our condition of sin and misery. And so we do not ascend to him out of the valley, but he descends to us in the valley in order to redeem us. Now, this is the third great reality that undergirds the Apostle Paul's teaching on joy. Joy is possible because we have a Redeemer, one who descends to us in the valley in order to restore us to right relationship with God. The eternal Son of God had eternally enjoyed perfect happiness in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was rich in happiness for all eternity. And he descended to become poor in the valley of tears. He who knew nothing but pure joy and delight became, as Isaiah described, the man of sorrows. He took upon himself our sorrowful condition. He took on our misery and our sin and he carried it to the cross to die the most painful deaths that has ever been known in this valley. One writer puts it like this. Because our sin is the cause of our misery, our misery could only be removed when our sin had been replaced with his obedience and when our sin's punishment had been executed upon his head. And the result of his humbling descent into the valley of tears is that you and I can now know the joy that we each long for through him. The basis of joy is God himself. The absence of joy is a result of losing fellowship with God in the fall. But the experience of joy is not today an impossibility because the eternally happy Son of God became the man of sorrows in order that we might be restored to the fullness of joy that is found in God's presence. But does that mean then that Christians ought always to be happy? Should we always be filled with joy and never sorrowful? Well, in one sense, no. We still live in the valley of tears, as it were. We still live in a fallen world and misery is inevitable here. In many ways, your sorrows even become intensified when you become a Christian because you feel the misery of this life more acutely now. You grieve over things that you never used to grieve over, your own sin and the way in which you often feel distant from God. Not to mention the fact that you will face certain kinds of opposition and affliction because you are a Christian. Paul knew that better than most. And yet, Paul still taught that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, even in this life. In fact, elsewhere in Philippians 4, verse 4, he taught us to rejoice in the Lord always. 
and even to rejoice in our sufferings in Romans 5 verse 3. So in another sense, yes is the answer to the question. Yes, we Christians ought always to be joyful. Well, how is this kind of experience of joy possible? It's possible when we realise and when we contemplate the fact that although we continue to live in the valley of tears, there are two other things that are also true about us. The first is that we will not remain in this fallen world. We will not remain in this fallen condition forever. Because the result of the eternally happy Son of God's descent into the Valley of Tears is that he will one day carry his people out from this place of sorrow and into a place of eternal joy. This is temporary. That lasts forever. A valley, properly defined, it lies between two mountains. With that picture in mind, we, we've been considering how we fell from the first mountain, from the perfect condition in which we were created. But the work of the Redeemer who descends to rescue us is not to take us back to that first mountain, but to take us on to a second mountain, as it were. On that first mountain, it was possible to fall and lose the perfect happiness we knew in perfect fellowship with the perfectly happy God. But on the second mountain, there's no possibility that we ever might fall back into the valley of tears. But in that place, tears will be wiped away by God himself. And in his presence, we will finally know the true happiness that we each long for. And not only is it true that the life of sorrow is only temporary for God's people, but it is also true, secondly, that no sorrow we experience in this life is without purpose. We might not be able to see it, but God assures us that he is in control of our every circumstance while we continue to live in this valley. One Welsh Christian minister, Derek Thomas, he put it like this. We have no right to expect that our lives are going to be free from trouble. But in every circumstance, if we are the Lord's people, we are assured of God's care and providence. He is working out every detail. There are no mistakes with him. Every moment of our existence is cause enough for joy. The good and the bad together should integrate to form a hallelujah symphony to the praise of Almighty God. How, how do we do that? How do we become increasingly joyful, even in this life? Derek Thomas suggested that far too often we spend our days in misery and gloom, all because we are not, ta- we are not taking what we know to be true about God and his control over our lives, Seriously. One theologian, John Webster, answered the same question by pointing us to two things. You want to grow in joyfulness in this life, you need these two things, he said contemplation and Christian society. 
The way to grow in joy is to contemplate the things of God. To think about these great realities that we've been considering this afternoon. And not only that, but to live your life alongside others who are seeking to do the same. So may God help us to do so. Let's pray. listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.